I'm excited about the passage we're going to look at, but before we get there, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun. Have you ever considered, over the the, the course of a a lifespan of, say, 70 years, how much time we spend on stuff? That's a fun game, huh? How much time do you think, think you spend on certain activities? Let's see. First one we're going to look at in a 70-year lifespan, how much time do we spend sleeping? Sleeping, we spend 24 years, some of us more than others. Now, this is all a very exact science. I pulled this off the internet, so I know this to be true. (laughs) Next, how much time do we spend doing work? We got 10.5 years for men, 8.5 years for women. I I don't know, I think this is changing. Uh, (laughs) Eating. Eating. How much time do we spend eating? Four years eating. Okay, and to go along with that, we've got cooking. Three years women, 1.5 years men. Now, if you were at Heaston, this is at least doubled or even tripled. Cooking and eating, I believe. We do that well. By the way, come tonight. Pie with a purpose. It's going to be awesome. All right. Uh, Next, we've got education. Two and a half years. Uh, TV and internet. Eight to ten years. And also phone which is four to five and a half years. Now, I know this has gone up a lot in the last few years uh, as I stand here on my iPad. Driving, three years. What about reading? It's a lost art, but that's three years. Next, we've got waiting. Three years waiting, but that includes getting ready. So two years for women getting ready and six months for men getting ready. True story. All right, well, so we got exercise. One year women, two years men. What about shopping? Two years women, one year men. Now, I know that ratio isn't right at all, at least not in my life. Let's see. Chores. Two and a half years women, one and a half years men. And last but not least, we have on the toilet, six months for women, three years for the men. Man, that's sad. So what do we do with all this? How do we respond to this? I mean, this is kind of silly. This is fun, but I think there's a lot of truth here. And, you know, I look at a slide like this, and how should I respond? And first of all, I'm a little embarrassed and, and convicted to not spend so much time, A, in the bathroom, and B, just waiting. Um, my wife's over there with a big old smile. Um, but I'm also convicted to realize how quickly all this stuff that doesn't really matter can eat up our time. Like in a blink, without even realizing it, stuff that is not going to leave a lasting kingdom impact. It can take all of our time. I mean, we, we have been called, those of us who are in Christ, we have been called by Jesus to serve the King of Kings. We have a great purpose to serve Him, to make Him known, to reach other people with His glory. And if we're not careful, all these other timing in our life, if we don't prioritize Jesus first and make the kingdom first in our lives, that list will be all we have at the end of the day. And even the good things on there, I don't think I want any of those good things on my gravestone. I want to be known for someone who, who, who made the king known and served Jesus well in this lifetime. But we have got to have kingdom priorities if we want to do that. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that's going to um, help us to discover how we can really realize kingdom priorities in our life. And we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament from the book of Haggai. 
That's right. I said the book of Haggai, and I'm really excited about this because I love going to passages that half of us can't even pronounce. So Haggai, where is that? That's page 1074. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you probably have an easier job getting there than some of the rest of us. Uh, it's, it's at the end of the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Haggai, it's close to books like Zephaniah, Micah, Nahum. It's really only like three books away from the New Testament. So if you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just get ahead of them. And it's one of those... It is, we're going to read half, we're going to study half the book today. It is one page long. I've, we got the entire book right here. Matter of fact, sermon-based Bible study next week that I'm a part of, we're going to finish it next week. But today we're going to look at chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, as you're still thumbing through trying to figure out where is Haggai, I want to refresh us on Old Testament history because it all ties together. If you were here last week, Justin led us in a sermon in the book of Exodus where you have the people of God who were in slavery in Egypt. And God delivered them out of slavery through the Red Sea. And immediately after that story that we looked at last week, God had a very special covenant ceremony with those people at at Mount Sinai where they became the nation of Israel. They became God's people. And because of the sin in their lives, they wandered through the desert for a while. But God finally delivered them to the promised land that he had promised long, long before that. And they're in the promised land as the people of God. And eventually God gives them a king, King David. David was a good king. And uh, David went to God and said, I want to build you a house. And God said, it's not for you to build me a house, but your son will build me a house, a temple here in Jerusalem, in the land, and the kingdom will not pass away from your throne, David. So there will be an eternal throne going from David. And so that went well for about two seconds before sin really corrupted everything, and the, the, the kingdom of Israel started to tear itself apart, and there was idolatry and sin, and God warned him time and time again, if you don't get your acts together, I'm gonna, I'm, it's going to be the end of you. And they didn't get the hint. Uh, And so God used one of the the massive armies from the east, the Babylonians, to come in and destroy Israel, destroy the temple, and take the people into captivity. And they were in captivity, and they were in slavery, for uh, basically in slavery for about 40 years. And during that time, another massive army, the Persians, so we know, I, you know Iran, modern Persia, but this was ancient Persia from that area, they conquered Babylon, and so they're now in charge of that remnant, the people of Israel, who had promises from God. And long beforehand, through Isaiah, God had, pro- had, had made it known that he was going to use the Persian king, King Cyrus, to release the people from their captivity and bring them back into the land. And so God's promises are enduring and they come back to the land. They're not in control. Persia's still in control. But God has, has, or they are placed in their, their land to rebuild the temple and rebuild their lives as the people of Israel. And so here we come to Haggai. And what's really cool about the prophets, a lot of times you jump into the prophets. I don't know if y'all have ever just, hey, I'm going to start reading the prophets. If you do that, it it can be really confusing because you're jumping into the middle of history with all sorts of context going on that you're not aware of. But those prophets are specific messages that are speaking into specific moments in history of the people of Israel. And what's cool is that in other parts of the Old Testament, we've got the history books, which were a lot more bland, to be honest. But they kind of give us the overarching history of what was going on in Israel and to the people of Israel. So Haggai, its message came during the history book of Ezra. So you guys have your fingers on on Haggai. You're welcome to turn to Ezra. I'm going to read Ezra to you. We're going to have the words on the screen. Ezra chapter 3. 
beginning in verse 10 and 11. So the people, they're in the land, and they started to rebuild the temple. And the foundation is laid. And they have this ceremony, it says in verse 10. When the builders established the Lord's temple, the priests, ceremonially attired, and with their clarions and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with their symbols, they stood to praise the Lord according to the instructions left by King David of Israel. And with antiphonal response, they sang, praising and glorifying the Lord, for he is good. His loyal love toward Israel is forever. And all the people gave a loud shout as they praised the Lord when the, te- when the temple of the Lord was established. What a scene. Can you only imagine? These were the people of God who for 40 years had been in exile. They'd been brought back. Their mighty God had rescued them from bondage. And boy, what a celebration. Wouldn't y'all like to have been there and been a part of that? I'm sure it was a mighty celebration that is described here. And they were so focused on living for God and his kingdom. The next couple of chapters of Ezra, we find out, first, there were some internal rumblings. Because, you know, anytime that God is on the move, spiritual warfare comes. And it came to the people of Israel. And they were, they began internally to have conflict. And then externally, some of the people on the outside were giving them grief. And they called on old king from Persia to shut down operations there. And he did. And they stopped building the temple. And time went by. And time went by. And a lot more time went by. And 16 years later, God's people had not done anything to that foundation that was laid. Can you imagine that? God had changed their lives in such a way, and they were so moved by that, that that mighty celebration. But they'd become indifferent. And they'd forgotten who it was that they were serving. And they totally forgot what their priorities should have been. So now we get to, to Haggai. I want to read verse 1 real quickly because it's going to have a whole bunch of names that we're not going to know. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. On the first day of the sixth month of King Darius, second year, the Lord spoke this message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Okay, what's going on here? First of all, King Darius. Okay, so this is a Persian king. This was the king of Persia. Usually these, these prophetic books are marked by whoever the king of Israel was. Israel didn't have a king. But wait a minute. God had promised through David that the throne would be an eternal throne. So you can imagine how the people were thinking, what is going on? Are God's promises really going to endure? Because it doesn't look like this. We don't even have a king right now. But God moves in mysterious ways beyond our imagination to make sure that his promises endure. And if you're here last week, we talked a lot about expectations and our experience. These guys were going to have to really lean on the promise of God. And here's what's cool. It mentions uh, that Haggai would speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. This is the religious leader of the people at the time. And the political leader, the political leader, the installed governor, governor of Israel, Zerubbabel, he was of the line of David. And if we go to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament, his name is in there because he was the great, 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 ten greats grandfather of Jesus. So the line is there. The promise was enduring. It wasn't what the people expected, but they needed to trust God and be faithful, and they needed to get their priorities straight after 16 years of indifference. 
All right, and so it says that this message came through Haggai. What do you know about Haggai? Not much. God used Haggai to be his instrument. God used Haggai to be his messenger. God is speaking here, and he's using Haggai. And when Haggai speaks on behalf of God, the people needed to listen. They needed to be open to what God was going to say to them, how he was going to speak. Because he was going to speak a truth that it would make the people uncomfortable. It would challenge them, but it was necessary for their good. And church, this morning as we explore this message that came many, many, many centuries ago, God is speaking to us now. And yeah, I I believe we'll be uncomfortable a little bit and challenged, but it's for our good. So would you join me in prayer as we open up our hearts for how God might speak this morning? Almighty, sovereign God, God, we know that you are mighty to save and your promises endure forever. And that we are on, when we are on your side, that is always the best and safest place to be. Help us to learn to live with your priorities and as your children. Help each of us to be challenged and open to how you would speak today about how our tra- priorities can be transformed to live for you first and foremost in our busy lives. God, would you speak and would we be open? Amen. All right, let's move a little deeper into the book of Haggai. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord who rules over all says this. These people have said the time for rebuilding the Lord's temple has not yet come. So the Lord spoke through the prophet Haggai as follows. Is it right for you to live in richly paneled houses while my temple is in ruins? All right. God doesn't sound very pleased, does he? He is uh, getting straight to the point because uh, he's, he's getting serious with his people. What do we see here? He says, these people. It's amazing what a difference a little pronoun can make. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You know, at home, or you want to know what your children did today? <laughs> Not my children. This is what your children did. And this is what God is doing here. I mean, these were his people, and he usually refers to them as my people, but now it is these people because he's getting their attention. Okay? And the people seem to have an excuse. What is it? The time for rebuilding the temple has not yet come. You know, I read this and I wonder, maybe they, maybe they believe that. I mean, they did have a lot of pushback, some serious pushback. 16 years ago, you can imagine that they were busy people, right? Look, the time hasn't come yet. Let me take care of my affairs First, I've got to get my house set up. Let me take care of my family. There will be plenty of time for me to focus on God's house. There will be plenty of time for that. I am just so busy. I don't think you understand how much I have going on. The time has not yet come. It seems that they thought they had a capacity problem. They didn't have a capacity problem. Sure, capacity was part of the picture. But it was more than that. They had a priority problem. And how do we know that? We see that in verse 4. Is it right for you to live in richly paneled houses while my temple is in ruin? Any of y'all have the NIV or the ESV translation out there? I know we probably have a few. Those translations, they just say paneled houses. So the Hebrew term that the author used originally, it could have been used to just mean houses. Like they're just building their house, right? Well, if we look and see how this term was used in the Old Testament, it was used just a few times. It was used in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 9, and then again in verse chapter 7. That term is used to describe panels that were used for the temple and for the royal palace. 
that's what those panels were used for. So I'm reading this, and you know, we don't know for sure, but it's quite possible that not only did they neglect God's, building God's house, he was, they were taking resources intended for God's house of worship and just using it to build their own house. That's terrible. I read this, I'm like, that's despicable. And then I kind of step back and, do, do, am I ever guilty of this? Do I ever just take these resources that God has blessed me with abundantly? God, I know that I'm going to be giving to your kingdom, and I'll get to that, but right now these resources, this money, this, my time, my talents, I've got to put them elsewhere right now. This hit me right between the eyes as I was, as I was reading this. They were building these richly paneled houses for 16 years and they hadn't gotten back to kingdom work. But God corrects them. He says, you don't have a capacity problem. You have a priority problem. Capacity problems and priority problems can easily be confused, right? When we get really, really busy, we say, I have reached my max capacity. I can't do any more. Look, there is a reality. Every person here has a capacity, a certain capacity. We're all wired a little differently, higher capacity, lower capacity, and our life circumstances give us a different capacity for service in God's kingdom. We can only do so much, right? So let's say, uh, let's say this is the average person in the room, okay? This is your capacity. You can only give so much to God's kingdom, this is it. And maybe some of y'all have real busy jobs, high-impact high jobs where your capacity is going to be a little lower. Okay, maybe some of you are like the single, young, recently graduated college students, young adults with a lot less entanglements. This is your capacity. You've got a whole bunch more that you can give, and that's awesome. Okay, parents out there, moms with uh, young children, uh, I see you out there too. We, it's okay. That's your capacity, and uh, that's all right. Um, but you got something to give. There's still something. We all have a capacity, okay? But we can't compute, confuse capacity problems with priority problems. We still have to prioritize God's kingdom. And whatever that looks like, if you make God first in your life, that will honor God. That will please God. And he will use whatever you have to give, whether it's this or this or this. If we make God's kingdom the priority... Let's continue our journey through Haggai and discover how we can increase our kingdom capacity. Okay, Because that's, that's not the end of the story. We can increase our capacity. Verse 7 through 11. And before I start reading, he's going to go kind of, a, it, it gets kind of poetic. Verse, uh, let's, oh, I haven't hit 5 through 6 yet, have I? We want that? Yeah, let's do that. Here then is, is what, the, what the Lord, oh, okay, yeah, 5 through 11. That's what we're going to do. Okay. It gets very poetic, 5 through 11. And he's going to list a bunch of areas uh, where there's hardship in people's lives. And he's going to say twice, the, the Hebrew idiom, set your heart upon your ways. Now, our translations have tried to take Hebrew idioms and put them in modern language. So the net translated it two different ways. I think, think carefully and consider your ways or pay close attention. Both times that shows up, it's saying, set your heart upon your ways. And I, want, I point this out because repetition is important. Okay, so God is speaking through Haggai and saying, look closely at your life. Look closely at what is going on in your situation. A real heartfelt, deep kind of self-examination. Okay, we have to look deep and we have to look broad. Because if you haven't made the kingdom in, 
the priority in your life. There is so much that you are missing. 5 through 11, here we go. Here then is what the Lord who rules over all says. Think carefully about what you are doing. You have planted much, but have harvested little. Okay, business is bad. You eat, but are never filled. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but are not warm. They keep going to things that are supposed to refresh them and satisfy them, and they fall short. Only God can truly satisfy. Those who are in wages end up with holes in their money, with bags, holes in their bags or in their pockets, unable to make ends meet. Make ends meet. Finances falling short. Verse 7. Moreover, the Lord who rules over all says, Pay close attention to these things also. Go up to the hill country and bring back timber to build the, the temple. Then I will be pleased and honored, says the Lord. So he's given them their instructions. This is what you need to do. This is my priority. Go and get this. Bring it back. Build my house. But what is the purpose of the instructions? So that I can be glorified. Other translations this one says honored. Other translations said so that I can be worshipped. God's goal for our lives is worship. For us to gather in worship of him together, his body. And for us to go reach the world and bring them into this. So we can worship our great God. That's his goal. You expected a large harvest, verse 9, but instead there was little. And then you brought it home. It disappeared right away. Hardship, hardship, hardship. Why, asked the Lord who rules over all? Because my temple remains in ruins, thanks to each of you favoring your own house. This is why the sky has held back its dew and the earth its produce. Moreover, I have called for a drought that will affect the fields, the hill country, the grain, new wine, fresh olive oil, and everything that grows from the ground. It also will harm people, animals, and everything they produce. So a couple things we need to see from verses 5 through 11 here. First of all, these people have brought hardship upon themselves and they don't even realize it. They think they're doing good things. They are doing good things, but they haven't put the king first. God's house lay, lays in ruins. And so they have hardship. And the next thing we need to see is that connection between the, the hardship they're experiencing and, and the, or, I'm sorry, and, um, and how God is bringing that upon them or allowing it to happen. That's what's going on here. The sky has held back its due and earth its produce. God wants to bless us. He is withholding blessing from the people. They could have so much more blessing. And it even says that he brings the drought. Now that's a tough one. God brings the drought. God is, is intentionally bringing hardship and terrible stuff in my life. Is that possible? That's a, the Bible talks about blessings and cursings. Okay? And we have to examine closely our hardships and our sin and ask, God, what are you doing here? And I want to make it very clear, though. Not every hardship is a result of sin. We have to, that's one truth that we need to make very clear. Okay, God, is, the Christian life, it's a sacrificial one. Naturally, there is hardship. Okay, 
Life is tough. This world is tough. There will be pain. There will be oppression. There will be all sorts of stuff, all sorts of negative things. So not every bad thing out there is a result of our mispriorities or our sin. But when we're following Jesus, we do need to look closely at our sin and at our priorities and ask ourselves the question, am, am I bringing this hardship upon myself? Would God be blessing me, would bring in more blessing and, and using me more if I were changing my ways? We have to self-examine ourselves along the way. These people were intended for so much more. They could have had so much more if they would just put the king first. Verse 12, let's look at the response of the people. This is where it gets good. I love this. All right. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, along with the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the Lord their God. They did it. They did what they are supposed to. They responded favorably to the message of the prophet Haggai, who spoke just as the Lord their God had instructed him, and, and the people began to respect the Lord. That right there is so important. Did God demand obedience? Yes, he did. He said, you get out there, you go get that timber, you bring that timber back, and you build my temple. He, you know, he, he gave them those instructions. I just used my dad voice. I don't know if y'all caught that. Um, but when I use my dad voice when, with my kids, I don't want them to just do it, right? I want them to want to do it and to realize that it's, it's, for, it's a good thing. It's for a better purpose. I have your best in mind. I want you to figure that out. God cares about the attitude of the people probably more so than the actions. The people began to respect the Lord. Some of your translations probably say fear the Lord. Okay, so the net, I, I wish the net didn't go away from that. Some people don't like that term fear the Lord because that just sounds terrible, but I... Um, hey, I love it. I fear the Lord. What does that mean? It's not... Uh, not like a scary kind of monster kind of fear. This is a proper view of a mighty God, sovereign God who created all things and is, and is so powerful. Like that lion in Aslan. I mean, Aslan is just a metaphor, but you know, a lion where you appreciate, you love, but you take seriously because you know what he's capable of, right? That's fear of the Lord. That's respect to the Lord. If we're going to make the king first in our life. If we're going to have kingdom priorities, we have to have a proper view of God. We have to know who he is. We have to take him seriously. And that's a, that's a sovereign God type of respect, but that's also a loving father who welcomes in and we recognize he calls us children and he loves us. We need to be once again enamored by the king. 16 years ago, these people had gone indifferent. That's so sad. They'd forgotten the love of the God who rescued them and wanted them to have so much. Have you ever been through a funk where you're an indifferent Christian toward your Savior? Maybe you're in that place right now. I know that, you know, that, that's a very easy place to go. An invisible God where we don't see the day, to, we don't really see Him at work unless we look closely, unless we draw close to Him through prayer and time in our Word. It's very easy to become that indifferent Christian. And God is calling us to snap out of that and, and to realize the love of our Savior on a regular basis. I have to reorient myself on this every day, multiple times a day. It is so easy to get caught up with our day-to-day and forget who God is and what He has done for us. 
But these people have reoriented their priorities and it began with a proper affection for God and proper devotion to God. We have to rediscover that regularly. Don't become indifferent. When we gather here to worship, we worship the King of Kings. If we believe that, we wouldn't miss a second of that. We continue in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's word to the people. I am with you says the Lord. So the Lord energized and encouraged Zerubbabel. Other translations said the Lord stirred their spirit. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the whole remnant of the people. They came and worked on the temple of their God, the Lord who rules over all. This took place on the 24th day of the sixth month of King Darius, the second year. What happens when the people changed their priorities. What happened when they moved with kingdom priorities? They were in love with the king once again and they were moving for him. God was there. They had his presence. Now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he promises to never leave us and that is a true promise. The Holy Spirit indwells us and that doesn't change. But the New Testament, we've been through Acts and we've seen the filling of the Spirit and how God moves more powerfully and with a much closer experience of him when we draw near to him. If we have kingdom priorities, we will experience the presence of God in in greater fullness. And that is such an awesome thing. And God energized them and encouraged them. God gave his presence and he gave his strength, his power, his presence and his power. The power of almighty living God inside of us is who we have. And when we have his priorities, it's amazing what can happen. These people thought they had such a capacity problem that it couldn't be done. But when they changed their priorities, that gave them a whole new capacity. Kingdom priorities lead to greater capacity. That capacity that you don't believe you have to serve God and give to God. This is what God does. This is how he moves when people give it all to him. Well, I'll give an illustration first. You know what comes to mind? The Grinch. I'm thinking of the Grinch. Anybody else see the Grinch? There he is. What was the Grinch's problem? The Grinch had a capacity problem, did he not? He had a heart that was two sizes too small. And because he was living according to the capacity of his heart, because he had a heart that was two sizes too small, he was therefore grumpy and dumpy and just wanting to get on people with everything he had. And he was going after the Who's down in Whoville, right? And so as the, the tale goes... He came to this crisis moment in his life where he was trying to do his worst deed, stealing all the Christmas toys, and he's there on the edge of a cliff, one hand holding onto the cliff, the other hand holding onto the sleigh full of all these toys and that poor dog, Max. And he looks down to Whoville, and all of a sudden, his priorities change. He has a new desire. And what happens to his heart? His heart increases not one size, not two sizes, but how many sizes? Three sizes that day. So goes the tale. And nobody said it with me. All right. Three sizes beyond his imagination. And so then with, with the new priorities and the new capacity of his heart, all of a sudden he lifts up that mighty sleigh holding all the presents and that, that dog Max as well. There's the picture there. This is a picture of what God does when we change our kingdom priorities. Yeah, it's just a cartoon, but I think it's a cool cartoon to help out, help us see the Grinch would have never thought he had that capacity. 
But when we change our kingdom priorities and give it to God, he changes our capacity beyond our imagination. We may have thought it was this, but it can be this and this. And yes, even you moms with the crazy kids hanging all over you, it can be this if we change our kingdom priorities towards the Savior. So in review, four keys to improve our kingdom priorities. First off, don't confuse, don't confuse capacity with priority. Yes, capacity is real. This is real. But if we make God our priority, he's going to do amazing things. Number two, self-evaluate regularly, daily, constantly. God, are my priorities yours? Am I living for you, the king, or am I living myself? Am I building your house or am I building my house? Number three, develop your affection for the king. We have to fall in love with Jesus again and recognize who he is and take him seriously if we're going to be about his business. And number four, trust in his presence and power. Almighty God is right there with you. He wants to help you on this path of serving him and to give you capacity beyond your imagination. That's what our God does. He specializes in this stuff. So whose kingdom are you building? Is loving and serving the king and extending his kingdom your top priority? How can you, how can you adjust your priorities? I do want to hit some application points after we, we, we journeyed through this passage because, you know, it's funny how when God speaks, a lot of times he speaks in, through different ways, overlapping, and that's certainly what I've seen in my life as I've been studying this passage. Um, did y'all get an email this week or last week from Justin? Anybody get an email from Justin? Yeah. Justin was, uh, it's as if we, he was studying the same passage. But see, he had no idea I was doing this sermon, or at least he didn't know I was going with this. And I didn't know he was developing that email. But it was really on his heart to speak to this church about some priority issues. And he, he talked about the vacation season, go enjoy vacation, but let's you know, focus on priorities. And then also, as we gather for worship, be fully engaged. He talked about that. And you would read the email. Um, but it looks like God's trying to get our attention, church. Uh, the, the way he's speaking in so many different ways from so many different angles. We need to adjust our priorities. I also, there's an email, or a blog post that came across my desk from uh, Tom Rayner. You've got it on your screen there. Tom Rayner works for Lifeway, and he does re- church research, and he publishes all sorts of stuff for church le- leaders. It's really helpful. Uh, kingdom priorities are a problem in the church nationwide, Okay. I mean, God is speaking to me. I, know, I believe he's speaking to our church. He's speaking to the church on this issue. Uh, priorities are becoming, it's challenging. And he, he posted a blog, six reasons church members are attending less frequently. Okay? Uh, and so what he was talking about, he said 10 to 15, he gave a definition of what frequent church attendance was. 10 to 15 years ago, frequent church attendance was 12 times a month. 12 times a month. That's a lot of church. Uh, now it's two times a month. That's the definition of the average, average frequent attendance. That's not very often, twice a month. That's the national average, and that's certainly what we've seen here at Houston as well. And so he's got these six reasons, and he said these are reasons. These aren't necessarily saying these are bad, but these are the reasons. These are the factors that we're up against. First of all, we're more mobile. People are flying more. People are driving further. People are going further. Lots of places. You know, we mentioned vacations. It's good. Go out and do things. But constantly evaluate, am I doing this for the glory of God? And 
I'm not coming back to be with my, my body of believers, the church that needs me. More affluent. So generally, people have more money to go do more things, go more places. Number three, we're up against more options. This is, it blows my mind. You know, parent with kids, it blows my mind the options are, that are coming from every angle that compete with coming to church. You know, quick disclaimer, I mentioned that whole 10 to, uh, 12 times a month deal. I'm not trying to say we need to be coming to church 12 times a month. I'm not saying that at all. You know, there's some people that think that, you know, Jesus things are only when you come and gather centrally. This right here is critical. We need this. Uh, but Jesus things, extending his kingdom, God has called us to go into the world and be the church in the community. So, you know, all I'm saying is we need to have priorities where we value this this gathering here. Okay? And we could be the church. We need to be the church in the community as well. We throw a lot of things in front of you and say, come do this, come do that. You need to say no to some of those things too to be about the work of kingdom priorities. And, and taking care of your family is important. Um, but we have to value gathering here as the body of believers. So many options. You know, youth sports it's out of control. How much? How many traveling teams here, there, and everywhere, and tournaments on Sunday? And these, I, I'm a coach. I with t-ball. We don't do tra- turn, but we're up against already. And I love being on the field. And I want to do some of those tournaments. And we're gonna do some of those tournaments. And next week during VBS, don't tell Nelaine or Ellen, but I'm skipping on Tuesday to go to my son's game. That's okay to do these youth sports things. But, you know, every time we're faced against missing church, you know, Garrett and I have talked, church is important, right? Yeah, your game, you've got to commit to your coach, yep. We really process, we really wrestle with this. We have to at least have the struggle because church, we need each other and we need to gather here. And so if you're going to miss, hey, there are going to be plenty of opportunities where it's a good thing to miss, but yearn to come back to us because we need you. God's kingdom needs us, the whole church, to move forward. And so number four is people consider optional. Because there's so many options, churches just become another option. This isn't just another option. This should be like oxygen for us. This should be our fuel to get through the days and the weeks ahead and our refocus on our mission to give the King of Kings glory. Those last two I won't get into. If you don't feel you've been challenged, please come talk to Justin, myself, or Jeff, or any other leader. We'll help challenge you. Or if uh, uh, not likely active in a small group, I'll just say that's a whole different sermon, but being connected is so critical. But let's return to the last slide. Whose kingdom are you living for? Yes, we, we're, we live in a busy world, and it's very easy to get filled to capacity so quick. But we have to have kingdom priorities. Go do all those fun things. Enjoy your vacations. I'm, I'm going to be out for most of July. You, you won't see me too much. Some of that's mission trip, vacation. I'm vacation. It's a good thing. Get refreshed. But yearn to come back to this and worship the king together as a church body so we can be sent out to live for him. It is that important. It is necessary. He is worth it. Jeff is going to lead us in a, an anthem now to help fix our eyes on Jesus, to help fix our eyes on serving him and giving him glory and reaching the lost with the gospel so that we can be about his kingdom priorities in this world. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty 
to save He is mighty to save Forever Author of salvation Heroes and conquered the grave Jesus conquered the grave Shine your light and let the whole world see We're singing for the glory of the risen King Shine your light and let the whole world see We're singing for the glory of the risen King Oh Savior, He can move the mountains My God is mighty to save He is mighty to save Forever author of salvation Heroes and conquered the grave Jesus conquered the grave Church, we serve a great God and he has us on a beautiful adventure to live for him. Go out into the world, giving him glory in all things, making him your number one priority and enjoy the beautiful blessings he has for you and be in awe of how he restores your capacity and leads you in incredible ways. Amen. Have a great week.